Hi everyone, I'm Pamelia Chia and you're listening to the Singapore Noodles Podcast, your go-to destination to learn about Singaporean food culture. Today I have on the show Desmond Shen, who is a Singaporean chef representing local cuisine. Desmond started his career in top local restaurants Odette and White Grass before pursuing international internships in Japan and Peru. With a new perspective, he returned to Singapore with a mission to build his own version of local cuisine. He now runs Tiffin Bicycle Club, a Tinkat delivery program, and is in the midst of building Alternative, which is a private dining concept set in a heritage house in Singapore. In this chat, he shares about his creative process and the Tiffin experience. That I read about you online is that you actually have Indian Muslim godparents. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, okay. So basically, growing up, right, we lived in this very old kind of place. So it's like a huge compound that was split by six houses. So outside the compound, there's like a, a nice field. You know, there, there's space to grow a lot of stuff, and we basically had six family of kids just kind of playing around with each other. So I was staying uh, next door to me was actually my discipline mistress mm-hmm. from my primary school, and she had a Indian Muslim husband, and she used to cook for us as well. And then uh, above me was actually my godparents. So they are my godmom is actually Indian Muslim, but my godpa is uh, Chinese. So essentially, like after school, I would kind of like when my parents were working, I would go to their houses. And like chill, relax, you know, because all our kind of schedules all linked up. So we spend most of our childhood together. So essentially, like I was a really fat kid actually when I was young. So like yeah, severely overweight actually. <laughs> During dinner, I would actually have dinner at my parents' house, which is predominantly Chinese, right? And then kind of go over to my godparents' house and pretend like I haven't had dinner yet, and then start eating again. <laughs> So yeah, I had very kind of different uh, meals growing up, and I think basically what that led to is uh, learning the overlaps in the food, like Chinese versus Indian Muslim cuisine, and also like what works and what not. Because you know, there's always like an aftertaste in your mouth, and when I when I go over to my godparents' house, you know, sometimes like your bitter god really can't mix with Indian food. When I eat like Chinese bitter god, and I go over to my parents' house and I have like rumpa, you know, it stays in your mouth. And it's quite a disgusting feeling. Like uh, the stuff that always works, like there's uh, a lot of overlaps in the sauces and stuff like that. Like Chinese style, you know, they do rumpas as well, but it's just, they don't know it as rumpa. It's like just spice paste to them. Mm. There's like asam fish and stuff like that. So I used to kind of eat all this food together. And essentially that built like a, a big repertoire in my head going like, okay, I can do this. You know, this works with this. I've had this before. And somehow it just clicked in my brain. Also, like uh, my godparents moved to India for a couple of years because my godpa had a job over there. So like I spent one summer with them in Bangalore, and then we traveled like uh, to the south. We went to Goa. We went to like a safari, and we had a lot of food over there. And I think that was the starting point where I was just like, you know, whoa, Indian food is like really really tasty. And there are, like so many things that we don't know of, right? Like because India, uh, there's so many places. They do so many different cuisines, and like every area is kind of different. So I was kind of exposed more to Indian cuisine at the beginning of like my ascension age. Yeah. 
But were you ever like a cook growing up or were you just like someone who really enjoyed eating? I think I really enjoyed staying in the kitchens while both my mom and my godma would work. So like mm. I spent a lot of time like just hanging out with them, just kind of being in the kitchen, talking to them, helping them like remove stuff from the oven and like tasting mm. like along the way, right? So you kind of like understand like you smell like onions in a in a in a quali. And then you taste them and then suddenly she puts a spice paste in and it's a different smell. And then you go and taste it and suddenly at the end, when it goes to the dinner table, you taste it and you go like, oh, wow, I didn't know it would evolve into, into being that. Mm. And that kind of like, I think that really stuck with me yeah. growing up. And I was just like, wow, like, you know, you can do so much with like small ingredients and like it, it just evolves along the way. And like the next day when we have like the like leftover food, you know, it changes flavor again. And it's so interesting because it's, 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 a, it's a very interesting evolution. Mm. Yeah. So with all of these experiences, what led you to being a chef? Okay, I always kind of thought that being a chef is not a decision, but kind of a calling. Like you just, you just know mm. you want to become a chef. Like when I was 16, like I really didn't know what I was going to do. Because like after all levels, like, you know, where do you go? So I think it was... Before my prelims, I was really like stressing out. I was just like, you know, what do I want to do? I, I could study, you know, I could get into a, a good school. But do I really want that? My, I, had, I have two elder brothers. So they, they've both done very well for themselves. So I was just like, you know, I'm that child. I don't really have to. There's no stress on me to go like the, the normal route in school, like where you get good. Uh, results, you know, you graduate from JC, you go to a uni. There was no need for me because, you know, two out of three, I think it's okay. Like one failure is enough. It's okay. Yeah. So essentially, uh, I just kind of set myself down and just asked myself, what do I really want to do? Do I really want to stay in like an office? Because at a point, like my brothers were both kind of doing internships and they were just like bitching about how much, <laughs> you know, how much they hated staying in an office. And I was just like, I'm the kind of person that makes a lot of rash decisions. So I think like mm -hmm. I, I made the decision because at that point I was trying to bake cookies for like my friends and stuff like that. I was really bored like, essentially. I just kind of thought to myself like what could I do? At that point I was still fat. So I was just like, you know, I'm fat. I fit into the mood of being a chef. Like maybe I should try. But chefs are also skinny. You uh, know what I mean? But like before you realize that fact, right? You kind <laughs> of have this image in your head that, you know, we are all these yeah, yeah. creatures, you know, just, just shouting around in the kitchen. And yeah, basically I told my parents and they were very, very worried okay. because they were like, you know, it's, it's so tough. We have, like, I think one side of my family, they were cooked mm. on a boat once mm. and my parents kind of knew that how tough it was, you know, they always fall into bad company. You start smoking, start drinking and stuff like that. So they were very worried about that. So my dad actually kind of, he warned me and he tried to convince me not to. So he got me a job with his uh, friends who own a catering company. It's a really horrible catering company. I don't want to name them, but like, yeah, he got me a job there as part-time. And it was, it was really quite awful because they made me and one of my, I, I dragged one of my friends in. So they made us like pluck muscle beards mm -hmm. for like, eight hours oh just gave us like a basin to sit on in the corner of the kitchen you know they yelled mm. at us like we were just 
having like a miserable time but like I throughout like the eight hours like debating muscles right I was just kind of like soaking everything in like the sound and stuff like that you know the pots clanking you know the, them shouting like over like mm-hmm. Cantonese Hainanese or whatever like dialects they are shouting but it was really fun like for me like to it's it's such a different environment right like uh, there's a lot of adrenaline there's a lot of like blood pumping and I've never really had that and then, yeah, you know, like we were, it was to a point where we were like debating muscles and we would fall asleep. And then the muscles would drop in the water right, and just like splash at us. And we were just like, oh God. <laughs> yeah, that kind, that kind of stuff. And like, uh, yeah, I just like that everyone was having fun. Like during, we would like mess up and stuff like that. And they would like give us lectures. Mm. But then like during family meal, like when we sit down and eat together, you know, everybody is like happy. Everybody's nice. You know things are things are good once again. I I, I kind of like that camaraderie. Yeah. Like I've never felt uh, a part of something as big as that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that really kind of just got me to be like, you know, I want I maybe I want to do this. I want to try this out. So I went behind my parents' back to kind of do like a direct poly admission mm-hmm. to like a culinary course in Temasek Poly. So I got it. I went for the interview alone. And then kind of like when prelims came, I kind of studied very hard just to make sure that they know that I could study. And I was just like, just just so you know, you know, these results are here. But I already got myself uh, admission into this poly. I did what you wanted me to do. I got the good results, you know, just let me do this. And then they didn't really have much choice like, because I was quite, uh, I was quite impulsive. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I think that was that. And then, yeah, after that, I just started school and it was it was nice. Like, I think they, they finally saw that I was passionate about something uh, that's not eating. And <laughs> they were just like, yeah, you should, you should actually try to pursue it and stuff like that. After a while, they, they realized that, yeah, maybe he, that's what he wants to do. And they started to understand. They started to support my decisions. Yeah. So how was that? You know, coming from such a rich, like diverse background where you were intimately aware of the processes that go behind Asian cooking to jumping into European kitchens. Like, how was that like for you? I think because of school, the curriculum in school and also like at that point, European cuisine was like all the rich, right? Like you wouldn't kind of go to culinary school and then go to a Chinese kitchen. It's just not like a, a path that they will they will be like, you know, you should go work for this Chinese restaurant, uh, be yelled at by the boss, you know, cut vegetables for 15 years. It's just not like the glamorous path, you know. So what when you go to school, they want to give you like, uh, they want to kind of secure you for your future. So at that point, European cuisine was kind of the way to go, the step up, right? So they kind of just threw us in these kitchens to... I think benefit us, but in turn, like, you know, it just made me realize that I, what I really want is, uh, to pursue Asian flavors. So after doing stints at Odette, as well as, uh, the white rabbit, as well as some hotels, I actually left, I, I applied for a starch to Narisawa in Japan. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that really was the turning point where I went like, okay, I want to learn Asian flavors, but I don't know mm. where to do that in Singapore. I, I really don't want to go to a Cantonese restaurant to be yelled at in a language that I don't really understand. 
I actually did before. Like I just stuck out like a sore thumb because everything they yelled at me, I'm just like, I don't understand. <laughs> I speak in Chinese, but I don't understand. Yeah, but wouldn't it be the same in a Japanese restaurant? But they don't know that, you know, like they just look at us like uh, you, you're just a gaijin, you know, you're just an outsider. You will never understand who you are and I'm okay with that because like, mm-hmm. as I said, like I like to kind of observe how the kitchen runs and I think at that point, Japanese cuisine was very new to me and I wanted to kind of just explore that. You know, I've always yeah. kind of loved Japan going there when I was younger and I just wanted to stay there for a while, see what it's like because everyone tells me it's such like a culture shock and stuff like that. So I wanted to experience it for myself. I actually didn't know that you were so interested in Asian flavors from the start. Just looking at the places that you have worked at is very, very like European. Yeah. So I mean, was it really clear for you right from the start that you wanted to pursue Asian flavors? I think it only happened after a while where after working in like all the French, Italian restaurants, I realized that like I don't have any, like there's no story for me to tell here. Because like if you want me to cook pasta, like I've never really grown up eating pasta, like fresh pasta or anything. So I don't really, there's no point of comparison for me, right? But if, you, if you're talking about like laksa or like prawn noodles, you know, innately, you're a Singaporean, you should know. Like I go to, my, to, to the, the wet markets with my mom or with my godmom every, every weekend mm-hmm. to eat breakfast and stuff like that. So I have like a point of comparison. So every time like when I'm cooking something like a bablong or something like that, you know, I have no reference point. I don't know how far I can take the sauce, like what level I can bring it to. But if you're talking about like prawn noodles, like once you taste the broth, you kind of know, okay, this is going in the right direction or this is, is, is not good as, you know, A restaurant or B restaurant or something like that. So at that point, like, I think it was the turning point was at Narisawa when I kind of went there and they started to get us to cook staff meals as well as also like on the weekends, like me and my friends would kind of have barbecues and stuff like that. And then they would be so happy to present their, their own country's food, you know, like they would be like, oh, I'm Spanish. I'm going to make a tortilla, you know, I'm, I'm French. I'm going to make some bread. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a charcuterie board or something like that. And I'm just there. Like I know how to cook Chinese food, right? And I started like, cooking like the simplest stuff because like, I was like researching like oh, I don't want to I don't wanna embarrass myself you know <laughs> and I started reading about this type of things started marinating things in cornstarch and frying them and they, they were just like their mind was blown by like Chinese food and like uh, techniques and stuff like that and I was just like wow okay you know what like I've never known that like uh, European or like Caucasians like they love our food so much mm-hmm. and then th- I think that was the point where I was just like you know what I want to kind of learn my own yeah. food also i'm going to embarrass myself in kitchens and tell me to cook stuff yeah. new so yeah i think that kind of kick-started everything and i kind of did a deep dive, a deep dive into local flavors and understanding what it was but when you say you know you want to learn about your own food what what does that mean i mean to you does it mean hawker food or does it mean the kind of food that you grew up eating or does it mean chinese food okay so I think it's just basically the flavors that I've associated since young, right? So along the way through my whole career, I think my direction changed a lot. At the point of Narisawa, I just really wanted to learn how to cook a very decent staff meal, like like traditional stuff and bringing it to like a, a global palette, you know, just showing them like, okay, this is how I've eaten this and I want to share it with you. But from then on, after that, when I came back to Singapore, I was just like, how can I kind of uh, push 
these flavors in a way that I've been taught, like by the the European cuisine, like all the other techniques that that shine more than local food, you know. Because to be honest, local food is really not sexy. Like you can't make it look like super, super, super nice. Like when it's in front of you, you you know the when like a bowl of of hemi or anything comes to you, like the first thing you just think of is wow, shook. Right, like that's the max that you can go. You don't go like, wow, this is beautiful. You know, I, I want to take a mm. picture of this. Like, I wanna, I wanna frame this up. You know what I mean? But with European food or like stuff like, uh, like, like Australian cuisine and stuff and and other cuisines, you know, they try to make it so nice. And I'm just thinking of how mm. I can kind of do both, where I focus on the flavor, like the combinations, the flavor profiles, yeah. and how they work. And then I kind of uh, bring in like uh, the aesthetic appeal to it, and also how to kind of change it to look nothing like how it used to be, and use like none of the you know the mamak garnish, which is basically the coriander, fried shallots, and stuff like that, or how to disguise it. Yeah. So along the way, I kind of I kind of realized that you have to understand the traditional aspect to it. Yeah. And from there, kind of just break it down like how asam laksa. For me, asam laksa is basically a bowl of normal hemi, but there's an addition of acid, which is in the form of tamarind and ginger flower. So these two, com- this the combination of these two actually just creates a new flavor, right? So why can't I just take these two? I understand this pairing and bring it to something else. And back in Magic Square, I started to ask these questions like we should really just understand why dishes work, like why chicken rice works. It's because of like maybe sesame oil plus like the chicken oils and the underlying flavors of scallion, ginger, uh, and all these type of things. So we just use the base notes of that dish and just transfer it to something else. Hmm. I love the that process. So what was the learning journey for you like? I mean, how did you learn more about Singaporean food? I think it's just really, really, really going out to eat a lot. Like there, there is, is there's so much knowledge about local cuisine you know like uh, this this but once again like you have to know like your sources right like what brand is the best stuff like that and then you go out you buy then you start testing like i really don't think you can there's a, a book or anything to to read and understand this you really have to test it yourself so i think magic square was that for me where they gave us one year and they gave us a lot of like they give us resources to kind of just bang around the kitchen and create different dishes. You know, we've created much more than you see in the, the nine frames at Magic Square. You know, every menu, I think we create at least 18 dishes and fill at like half of them. So be, doing that, you know, we really kind of build up your ingredient knowledge. Like this works with this, this works with this, this works as an oil. This doesn't work as a flavored oil and stuff like that. So you kind of build a huge pantry in your head and then from that pantry you kind of narrow it down like uh if i'm making like a coffee oil can i pair it with a master stock that kind of thing and just understanding how these connections happen and then after like after that one whole year you know your brain is like it's like a mind bank of all these different uh experiences that your palate has, has tasted and stuff like that so you just start to piece them together mm. yeah so let's talk a little bit about Tiffin. So I, I mean, I've read interviews about why you decided to start Tiffin. It was like a response yeah. to COVID, right? To the pandemic. 
Yeah. Um, I, but what I'm very interested about is why you chose Tiffin, I mean the Tiffin as a carrier for something that is so refined and so like fine dining. Right. So I think you have to kind of like date back a little bit because this whole Tiffin concept was only open a year after I conceptualized the concept. So uh, a year like, okay, from now, probably like one and a half years back, I just came back from Peru doing a stint at Central and being at both Japan and Central, both very sustainable places and restaurants. I came back to Singapore without having a clue what I was going to do and the pandemic just started, right? So I was kind of lost. And then uh, my old chef, Chef Julian, actually asked me to do the take-home concept for Odette, which I was very happy to do because like, you know, I get to work with them again. I get to do like, like very high-level food again. So like, I was very happy. I started doing the takeaways and stuff like that. And then because of where the entrance was to this kitchen that I was working at, it was located right next to the rubbish rubbish point, right? And then at the point, every day when I walk into work, you know, you see the amount of, of plastics being used. Like not by us, like we try to minimize it and, and keep it keep it really tight. But you can see like how much people were doing takeaways and like there's just an enormous pile of plastics that have not been recycled or, or used for the second time, just thrown away. And you can check with any supplier at that point of time, you know, like just plastics were unavailable or really at a really high price because just we were trying to cope with the demand of takeaways. So at that point, I just felt really bad for the, <laughs> the environment by using so much stuff. And like, I just wanted to find a way where I could minimize that. Hmm. And like, Can I ask why were you feeling so sensitized to that? Because I feel like a lot of people in hospitality, right? Like they just go through so many years being accustomed to seeing that, that amount of uh, plastic waste. So yeah. what do you think made you sensitized to that? I think I was kind of always looking abroad. Like while I was in Singapore, I was always looking at what the, my past workplaces have been doing like uh, Narisawa as well as Central at the point we were going through the same thing right and I was just looking at their concepts and how they moved into takeaways while still retaining that sustainability aspect to their restaurants and being in both countries you know they have a big like recycling uh, they do a lot of recycling over there so I was always at Japan and as well as Peru, I always kind of recycled my stuff. But coming back to Singapore, like it's a little bit hard to do that because there's not a real good support structure behind that. So coming back, like I really wanted to kind of do a different model. So I kind of looked at what they were doing and they were going against the notion of using plastics. They were doing stuff like bamboo wrappers, rice wrappers, you know, they, they use bamboo leaves, they use banana leaves and stuff like that. Central was doing like a, a tortilla that was just wrapped like like that, you know? And they just kind of wrapped up a tortilla and just sent it with, with like their sets and stuff like that. So I was just thinking of how we could fit it into a local context. And then the idea kind of struck me where my mom always used to do like this tengkat thing, right? And she used to go to the market, bring it home, or she'll pass it to me and tell me like, you know, go to the market and get me some cheng teng or stuff like that. I would bring the thing and I'll, I'll be so happy because in that metal box of mystery, you know, there's always like food and it's always a happy thing to kind of like break open the box and just 
unstack the layers. So I I I started narrow down to this concept. Hmm. So you know we were talking about waste, and you know we all know that in fine dining there's a lot of waste, there's a yeah. lot of um, yeah. cut all the best parts, and then you have off cuts. So um, how have you integrated this into your food? So I think that's uh, a thing that we actually started doing very heavily at Magic Square. Not only because of us wanting to cut down the 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 wastage cost, it's also to kind of minimize our costs because the menu was so cheap, right? So we we started to think of very different ways on how we we used a, a certain cut of meat, a certain vegetable. We just basically tried not to throw anything away, and I think. One of the steps to do that is to name the thing by its part instead of just calling it waste. Like if you are doing, like let's say trimming carrots, you know, you take away the carrot head, you take away the carrot, the end of the carrot, and then you have the carrot peel. You call that that, you know. So you don't call it trim. You just call it like carrot peel. What are we going to do to the carrot peel? What are we going to do to the carrot tops? What are we going to do to the end bits of the carrot? And then. This this thing start to think you know could I make like a, a a carrot peel soup could I make like a carrot oil could I make like uh you know something out of tail a little bit of of shaving and stuff like that especially with meat because like there's so much so many parts that you throw away like in a chicken there's like the the cock's comb you have the beak you have the, the 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 windpipe and stuff like that so once you start calling it the waste you tend to just not regard it. So we started that that whole thing where we just be like, let's not label that waste, let's not label that trim, let's call it what it is. And then we started to kind of in our in our brains is ingrained in the back of mind. What are we gonna do with that chicken neck? What are we gonna do with the 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 windpipe? What are we gonna do with this? And we started to kind of experiment with that. So I think from there, there on, like our thinking was very different already. Like we started to make use of everything, even like you know like uh, herb twigs. We started to keep them, and like the kitchen was just like a hoarder's house, you know what I mean? Like we started to keep like twigs to kind of smoke different meats and different vegetables to in just basically try to minimize the percentage uh, waste that we have and increase the yield of whatever we are having. And that was really cool because you can create a lot of new flavors by using things that people normally don't use, and also you save a lot of money. While doing so, yeah. yeah, I love hearing about how you really embody the notion of sustainability. But because I feel that so often people just throw these words around, yeah, um, almost like a marketing kind of um, you know, catchphrase. Yeah. So I I think it's really encouraging and inspiring for a lot of cooks and a lot of chefs to embody it both in commercial kitchens and as well as their home kitchens. So I also know that you have a vegetarian menu. So why come up with a vegetarian menu? I think at the start, like there were a lot of vegetarians that reached out and just went like, you know, we're we're seeing this concept. You know, it's it's at at the start it was just people that were very concerned about the environment, going like, wow, mm. you know, you're doing this project, you know, kudos to you. You we really want to support this project, but we are also vegetarian. So I found that there's a lot of cross. Between these two groups, like people who wanna help the environment and vegetarians,、mm-hmm. so I think naturally, like one, I had I was already planning for one tiffin box menu to be a vegetarian menu, so it was actually not that difficult, in a、mm-hmm. sense that I cook with quite a lot of vegetables as well. There was only one 
meat costs from the first menu. So I just adapted that menu and made it fully vegetarian. Hmm. But the thing is, a lot of Singaporean dishes, the core flavor comes from animal products, right? Whether it's prawn heads or like chicken mm-hmm. or pork. Um, so how did you really champion Singaporean flavors through um, vegetables? Actually, I don't really think so. Like, there are a lot of, like, I mean, yes, to the meats being like the essence of the dish, but I do feel like this, the, the majority of the dish is built around sauces, right? And sauces in the Singaporean context normally comes from rempa. So there's a lot of flavors that comes from coconuts as well as adding spices to, to different flavors. And doing the vegetarian menu, I actually zone into Indian cuisine because they do that the best, mm. right? Like honestly, there's so much flavor yeah. and they don't use any meat at all. So I was just trying mm. to kind of create a menu that I didn't have to rely on the dish being like, oh, I'm just going to suck the meat out for this other thing i just tried to do like a totally different thing like i think in the menu the first dish was a mango and avocado ceviche-ish thing but the ceviche sauce was actually made with belimbing as well as star fruit so that also in in its own sense like has a lot of uh local context because we eat star fruits with salt drink star fruit juice with salt when we were we're, we're having a cold when we're having a sore throat so i think that sauce really reminds me of that and yeah we just i I just kind of like went with that whole play so the second dish was built on uh, roasted pumpkin as a curry indian kind of inspired pakodas as well as burgadils for the next one with a a nice curry so that was kind of like the meaty part Mm -hmm. of it so i think i i asked you (laughs) <laughs> during my menu like how how do i spice this burgadil up because i really wanted to make it a little bit meaty so the same spices right like cumin fennel seeds caraway and stuff like that so you just add that and immediately you have like a thing that tastes like a meat seasoning so i think that was the only part mm. that i referenced a protein like an animal protein to that meal Mm. And are there any like techniques that are your favorite for creating more flavors in vegetable dishes? Yes, I do think that oils are very important. So mm. every menu that I make, actually, I start it like maybe a month before. Once I start conceptualizing the menu, I start the mise en place like a month before just making oils. Because I think that's the basis of a lot of sauces. If you, if you can't, like, there's a lot of water in, in vegetables, right? And water is basically the enemy when you're trying to mm. create a lot of flavor. So instead of evaporating all of that and trying to, you know, reduce the amount of moisture in which you're creating a dry product or like a, mm. a product that has lost its texture, uh, why not just zone into the other aspect, which is the flavored oils, right? Because oils create a lot of mouthfeel while retaining the texture of or the integrity of the, the vegetable or anything like that. So before all my preparation, I actually start the oils first. So what oils go with what and stuff like that. So as I said, like I, I, I like to create, like I think the base note of every dish that I make is a flavored oil. So mm. if even if like the dish is like a very simple, like a braised chicken or like a poached chicken breast, I would do like a, like a galangal turmeric and ginger flower oil. So just to create like a very nice base note and then 
whatever you put on top, you know, you can just kind of mute that oil taste with a little bit more diluted oil, or like you can just amplify it with a different, like maybe chicken oil or oil from other plants, pistachio oil or something like that. You know, just stuff like that to just build the the base of the the flavor and then to build the base of the dish and then you pile on the different textures and different layers. And how do you obtain this flavored oil? I mean, do you basically do, you know, like tempering or, you know, I, I, I think you told me once about the galangal oil that you use and it sounded very precise. Yeah. So can you share a little bit more about that? I think with oils, what I realized is that Okay, the first rule of oil is that if it's made into an essential oil, you can't make it. So like lemongrass oil, uh, like uh, rose oil or some stuff like that, you have to buy it, right? You can't really create it yourself. So these things, just just let's not touch that. But there are two different ways to make oils. Uh, I mean, three. One is a cold infusion where you just leave it uh, like pepper oil. You want, you want it to not be too heavy in spice but you want a kind of like a floral back note where you don't really want that hit of spice but more like the the smell of pepper the scent of pepper yeah. so you do like a co-infusion co-infusion with flowers as well to make a floral taste like zest uh, things that have things that can dilute very fast or evaporate like the the volatile oils the volatile smells and stuff like that you do co-infusions so when you say co-infusion you mean just cover the ingredient in oil yeah, normally I just use like a sous vide bag or like just put it in a container and just repeatedly vacuum it. Can you do it without vacuuming? Uh, yes, you can. Just maybe a longer period of time. Yeah, or this, or it maybe it might work in the second second method to doing oils. So a warm infusion where you just kind of maybe put it in Ziploc bag, uh, chuck it into uh, maybe eighty degree oil. So that really works for shallot oil, I realize. Like, not fried shallot oil, but like a scented shallot oil. Like, if you're making chicken rice or stuff like that, or like just flavoring the base of a rice for donabe or just normal rice, you can just kind of add oil, shallots, ginger, and do like a warm infusion. Just chuck it in like a, a hot bath for maybe two hours and let it just sit overnight. And the next day, you get something that is not too strong. It doesn't have that fried flavor, but it has that very gentle, mild kind of note. And then there's the last one, which is which extracts the most flavor and the most concentrated oils, which is just basically taking... This works best for like maybe green oils and also ginger and root vegetable oils. So what I do is like... So this branches out into two as well. So one I do in the Thermomix... Like you, for green oils, you kind of blanch it first, shock it so that the color remains bright. And then you kind of put it in Thermomix and go at like 80 degrees for 10 minutes. Uh, that whole process is basically just to evaporate the moisture from the leaves and, and just kind of uh, incorporate everything into the oil. After that, just let it sit. And then you get a very, very tasty oil. That works mostly for herbs. But there's another one where it's like root vegetables, or stuff like that, that you really need like high heat or like spices, right? You need like a, a kind of at least 80 to 100 degrees in between there. Like it really depends on what you put in like the volatile oil. So normally when I start a batch of uh, root vegetable or, or galangal oil, for instance, I actually just slice it very thinly and put it in like an 80 degree oil. Once you see the bubbles forming, you kind of just leave it there for maybe one hour. 
And then towards the end, once the temperature starts uh, going lower and lower, I just add a lot of spices just for that last half an hour. Because if you put your spice too early, it's going to, the volatiles are going to evaporate, right? And you don't get an oil that really tastes like your spices. So essentially all the spices that you put there have gone to waste. Wow. I feel like I've never really tried cold infusions. I've always done like the, the last one that you talked about. Just because I, like, I'm not sure if people are able to taste the nuances. I do, but it really depends on what dish you're trying to create. Because like... Uh, like a more subtle dish or correct. like a cleaner. So, exactly. So when you're creating things like a, a cold appetizer, like something that mm. has very floral flavors, right? Like you just want the oil to coat the tongue and mm. to create a different sensation to, to, to what the eater is eating, right? So mm. you put like a, a very lightly scented oil, like maybe jasmine oil or mm. some or, or things that are very floral and you don't want that flavor to be too strong. So you just drip like a couple of, of dots and then there's like this unique flavor. You know, sometimes you can't even taste it. But mm. as the chef that's creating the dish, I know that this tastes better than without oil. You know what I mean? There's like this hit you, the, the, the consumer might not know yeah. what he's consuming, right? Like, oh, I, I don't know the taste of this oil. But as the, the person who created it, you know that this makes that dish taste slightly floral. And then mm. you, you do that kind of, of, of adjustment. And mm. I realize this works a lot when you're dealing with fish and yes. seafood because yeah. Yeah, when you try to showcase like the, the plant, like, the clean flavor of the fish, you really want that to shine instead of whatever else that you're putting in. And you yeah. don't want it too strong like a, you know, a kaffir lime oil where it's just like in your face. So, yeah. yeah that's I like much. that. It's very similar to like the, the method, I mean the technique where they would put spring onion on top and then you pour over like a drizzle. Oh, yeah. yeah, so it wouldn't be like super hot because it's on the fish, right? So mm -hmm. it's more subtle, I guess. Yeah, yeah so it's a great technique. There's there's like one one dish that we kind of hack that I think really <laughs> kind of explains this point. Like uh, nasi lemak rice. Mm. Normally when we do it, like when I used to do it at Magic Square, we didn't add any coconut milk. So oh. <laughs> yeah, so we just did a normal rice because we didn't want it to uh, gelat, right? So mm. we wanted to create a rice that didn't really have coconut milk but tastes like nasi lemak rice, right? So what we did is we actually just kind of focused on the main components of nasi lemak, which is pandan, uh, mm. a mixture of like the curry leaf, laksa leaf, and uh, ginger kind of oil. So we created a very bland kind of ginger plus uh, curry, curry leaf plus lime leaf oil. And then we mm. have the base of coconut oil. And we added a lot of galangal and ginger oil. You don't realize like these are the flavors that built the, the flavors of nasi lemak rice. But yeah, once exactly. we cooked it and we, added, and we added the oils in, we were just like, dude, this is nasi lemak. You create an oil, it, it kind of mutes that flavor. So you have a lot of leeway to play with, right? Yeah. So you can add a lot of different oils without it actually tasting too strong, like the final product. But instead, like a combination of these oils, we found works very well when you're creating local dishes because they all kind of have that little nuance mm. when like they're cooking a huge batch of nasi lemak. Mm. Some people slip like uh, bentong ginger 
or you know a little bit of lemongrass or stuff like that and you 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 won't you won't ever know about it mm. it's just at the end when they open the steamer you know there's that smell yeah, that comes out so that smell is what we're trying to to capture mm. and kind of really let that linger in the rice so i think the best way to do that is creating an oil where the the scent and the flavor is kept in the oil and then translating that into the rice mm. are there any difficulties that this format of serving food presents meaning serving food in a tiffin because for mm. things like pakodas you know you have to eat it piping hot and fresh so how do you get around that so like with i generally try to stay away from fried mm. food but for that menu it was quite important because throughout the whole course is like you know, soft vegetables, soft vegetables, soft vegetables. I didn't want the whole, like, uh, the palate sensation to be to be one-dimensional. So I wanted to create something crispy. So in doing that, I kind of stitched myself up because I had to start frying them kind of, like, in batches. So every half an hour. So my interval is, sorry, my window of pickup is two mm-hmm. hours. So 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. So I did it in four batches where I do, like, maybe I have 25 sets. So I do... Five, five, five. Mm-hmm. Then after that, the last one, I just split them out, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So I have to kind of fry them, cool them until they're really cool and yeah. crisp, and then transfer them, and then start putting the little garnishes over the top. So yeah, the vegetarian menu is quite stressful <laughs> for me. <laughs> yeah, but for other stuff, for the tengkats, I think they generally work quite well, mm-hmm. keeping for a little bit, because yeah, the stuff like stews. There's like curries and stuff like that. They're always, you know, after you can't eat a curry too hot, mm. right? Or else you can't, you really can't taste yeah. anything in the curry. You need to let it cool down and then bring it up again. Then you get like a lot of different, more flavors. It's like the flavor has started to bloom. Yeah. yeah so I think local food works very well in like a tenkat format. And yeah, I think it was okay so far. Like I was, I was lucky enough because I have like a warmer mm. at home. So I put it in the, the warmer and kind of just monitor it. So with every Tengkat box, I do like a crash test. Mm. So I cook like a meal for myself, like in that format of the Tengkat and then put it in the warmer and see what works and what doesn't, you know, will the flavor texture be affected? And then I start to plan the firing process mm. again. Like if I need to do this last minute, I'll do this last minute. If the guests like is here i will need to put it in front of the guests mm. so they know that you know this is a crispy element it's supposed to be crispy so once they and i, I urge them to okay if you are going home and you're not going to eat it you need to take this layer out and let it air for a little bit or take this this uh component of the dish and maybe you know you can toast it or you can put it in a steamer put it in a warmer or something like that, and then it will taste the best but if they don't want to do that that's fine yeah you know what i mean like you just have like an okay meal versus like uh, uh, this is how I meant it to be eaten kind of meal. Because a lot of people take like the tengkats to do picnics and stuff like that, which I was a, really a big fan of. <laughs> like when they sent me their picnic pictures, I'm like, yeah, you know how to live, man. <laughs> so yeah, I just started to plan that in a way where there are quite a, quite a few items that can be eaten at room temperature mm. uh, without requiring a lot of reheating. Uh, so I, I quite like, I did not do a lot of fried garnishes. Speaking of garnishes, I'm very impressed that like everything holds up to all the handling. Oh, like every time people post photos of your food, it always looks amazing and pristine. Yeah, so like there's like there's kind of like ways to anchor it, right? Like just piping stuff below, making sure it stays, or like just yeah. 
kind of make like when I see the box, I'm thinking of how to anchor it down like really high. You know, there was like this, I remember I did like a toast, like crab toast. And I was so scared mm-hmm. because that thing is like basically just toast with a layer of of uh, green curry crab, like a mm-hmm. singang. So like that one, I really had quite a bit of difficulty because I wanted them to eat it while it's still crispy, like like how toast is, right? Like not too crispy, but just that crust and the soft inside. So I had to put mm-hmm. like a piece of betel leaf over the the bread so that the the crab doesn't soak into it and then kind of like on top like i had this fried garnish of egg treads and stuff like that so i had to kind of like really press it down and make sure that the egg treads were dehydrated already and so it's like once it goes to them you know it kind of takes in a little bit of moisture but that's still okay it's so interesting because i feel like this you know, feeds into all your experience of being a fine dining chef or being so meticulous. Yeah. And then you have like Tinkat, which is like very, very like rustic and old school, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> I love that. But I think like uh, with the Tinkats, my idea was to... Because once you go to the internet and do like a quick search of the Tinkat programs in Singapore and you kind of see the pictures, it's not very convincing to order. It doesn't give you a lot of confidence to buy their product because... It's normally just food that you can get at like a Tap Taipung store, right? Like they just cook in a huge batch and use like a, a wok to just throw it in, that kind of thing. So I wanted to create like a different experience because if it's, I don't think it will catch on like using tengkats if the person sees the food and just goes like, uh, you know, I don't really want to eat this. So I really wanted to try to make it as sexy as possible, as as beautiful as possible so that people kind of see it and be like, you know, I actually can use this and, and, and have a really nice meal in it. So mm-hmm. I hope that that would spark something in the Singaporeans going like, and it, and it kind of did because they started to try to buy the tengkats from me. Like when, when they take it home, they're like, you know what, can I keep this instead of your guy kind of trying to pick it mm-hmm. up? And I'm just like, I'm sorry, but you know, I only have a few. So yeah, mm-hmm. after that, they kind of asked me where I source for them. I gave them the links and they started to buy it themselves, like the guests. And they started to use them, which I was very glad. Yeah, so mm. I think that was pretty cool. That's fantastic. Yeah. Did you have another motivation behind starting uh, Tiffin? I mean, I read in an interview, you talked about the serious lack of representation um, of Singaporean food. So uh, what do you mean by that? I, I do think that I should rephrase this. I think I did an interview when I was doing okay. Magic Square, so my brain wasn't in really the right place. So I, I think there's a serious, serious lack of growth in the Singaporean food, not a representation. Like I think we are represented by a lot of people, mm-hmm. like be it in Singapore and overseas. Like we're, yeah. they're flying like the Singapore flag way high, you know. Like we have uh, a guy like Kenneth is in Noma and he's doing so well. We have like different sous chefs all over the world and stuff like that. So I don't think there's there's a rep- lack of representation of Singaporeans mm-hmm. in uh, overseas context, but. I do think that there's mm. a serious lack in the growth of our food where we always just see restaurants chase, going like uh, this is a modern interpretation of a bakute or something like that. You know, it's just that is overplayed and like putting lobster or frozen half-shell scallops on things is, yeah. is really not going to help our cuisine, right? So, <clears throat> like, we've thought about it a, a lot at Magic Square on how we can kind of improve this because that was always the underlying goal of Magic Square to create... Uh, a step up from from Singaporean food. 
and how to represent it better. So <clears throat> I remember at Peru, I was actually share, doing a sharing. So we have like this sharing session right before our small break where one person would do like a sharing from his perspective. So it can be anything. It can be a craft. It can be a view, a political view or like food, which is predominantly the case. So I did a sharing once about Blachan and they started to to go like, wow, like I didn't know this, 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 this was available in, in, in your side of the world. You know, I thought only, only the people of like uh, our coastal areas do it or stuff like that. So I was just quite amazed that they really didn't know anything about our food. So like I was also thinking, you know, if more of these techniques or ingredients are shared, you know, there could be like a, a wave of like, oh, you know, we do the same thing in this country, but in this different method or this different way that makes the thing a little bit better. And then we start to learn from each other and see how we can um, mm. use that to our benefit. And how do you think this can happen? Uh, I just think like we should just create dishes more like in a, in a different form, like bring the cuisine, elevate the cuisine a little bit. I think that would just naturally get people very interested in what our little country has to share. And from then on, mm. like discussions will will start to happen and then people will start to be like, oh, you know, I want to understand this because, okay, to be honest, if I ask you about Peruvian food, I think you will know very little about it. So like that's, that's what happened to me when I was in Singapore and that's why I wanted to find out. You can't find any, like a lot of information about Peruvian food on the internet because they're all in Spanish, right? Mm -hmm. So I decided to kind of go yeah. there myself. So why I did that is because I found that their food is interesting. <clears throat> but can we do that? in the form of Singaporean food where people come halfway across the globe to kind of taste our food and have like discussions on how their food and our food, their similarities or their differences or stuff like that and trying to learn our ingredients because when I went there, I was just so amazed by the, like, the kinds of ingredients they have, be it like sea levels, like, like how many meters above sea levels, the different herbs you can find in the mountains and stuff like that. So in Singapore, we have quite a lot of indigenous ingredients like Ulam Raja, the Singapore ginger. We have the ginger flower, pandan, moringa, rukam even, belimbing and stuff mm. like that. And I don't think a lot of people know all these ingredients and have even tasted any of these ingredients before. So I feel like we have to kind of represent what we have, but not do it. You mean, you mean people overseas or people in Singapore? I do think we should look <clears throat> kind of in Singapore it's a bit hard to achieve this this success where everybody kind of just looks at the thing and just go oh I have that in my backyard you know oh I have mm -hmm. this but I realized that once you create like a kind of like a cloud of international people zoning into Singapore and going like wow they have this ingredient what is this you know what I mean and then suddenly the people are going like oh wow you know I plant this in my backyard so yeah yeah so I I do think that we need to look out to kind of broaden our, our like how the cuisine is, how it's going to grow. And I think it's starting in Singapore where a wave of chefs started to focus on local cuisine, like local ingredients and stuff like that, which is very, very encouraging and very, I'm very happy to see that. Yeah, actually, I realized that a lot of, I mean, the climate is so different from like, say, five to 10 years ago, right? Where like Singaporean food yeah. is like, unhit like no one wanted to learn about yeah. it but now yeah. it's like maybe it's because of covid but everyone is embracing 
um, local flavors. And then you have so many home businesses where people are selling kueh and things like that. Can I also ask you about like the aesthetic of Pippin? Because I feel like it's, it's really unique in that you're making something very unsexy, sexy again. Do you feel that that could be making Singaporean food more popular with the youths, you know, like younger Singaporeans. Do you think the form is very important? I do. I do actually. Because nowadays when you, when you kind of like when you just do a quick glance of Instagram or any other restaurants that have been succeeding very well or like blowing up, you realize a trend. Like every restaurant has really good marketing, right? So honestly, Tiffin Bicycle Club had no marketing. I, w- I was doing everything. So it was just like a very lazy format, you know, like I had one of my friends who is like one of the most creative people I know to design the logo for me. So she actually designed it for me way long ago. I just told her like what I want. I said like I, I was a fat kid riding a bicycle with like a tinker. Is that you? I didn't know that that was you. Yes, yes. So essentially she drew that and once she did, like I was super encouraged to pursue this because like it just everything fit, right? Like, I had no confidence at the start. But once I saw the logo, I was just like, you know, like, we can actually create some marketing out of this. So we started mm-hmm. to kind of think of how to make, like, the Tiffins look decent. Like, it's just metal boxes, to be honest. But mm-hmm. even, like, that, could you, you dress it up with a sticker or stuff like that. And people just, I think it's the content that really, really, really matters. So the outside of the boxes, it looks mysterious. And that's that's one that's one win for us. And then when you open it, I, I really, really tried very hard to keep it very colorful. So every layer, once you open, it's kind of like, whoa, okay. Wow, I didn't expect this color. Because normally when you see the pictures of uh, Tiffin boxes, it's kind of just brown, yellow, stuff like that. You know, it's just very muted, very dull colors. So I really wanted to kind of brighten everything. So I worked with a lot of uh, local farmers to get a lot of flowers in which is very not typical for a tiffin box because no one's going to put flowers on it like it took a lot of time but i think it's very worth it to create that image of uh luxury you know at home with a tiffin box which is so ironic right like you holding a tiffin box but i i think the concept kind of works as i said during the covid the, the circuit breaker time like everyone was really bored right and mm. then i realized that my neighborhood is really a very nice neighborhood that people don't really come to <clears throat> so i wanted them to come and pick it up themselves to once so once you come out from the the car park it's actually a walk through an alley which is all the colonial houses that look the same so it's it's a really nice walk to the back and there's like a sort of like oh where am i like i don't i really don't know where i am because it looks like old british housing but at the mm. same time, once it starts to rain because of like the, the lighting here, I don't know why they, they did it this way. It kind of looks like Kyoto. So it's like, a, it's like an experience that I've never had before while walking around the neighborhood. Hence, I, I, I got them to do the self-pickup. So once you come through the neighborhood, there's like this quaint little house with, with no sign at all. Like there's just a 99 that's added to the door. So people open the door and they're just like, oh, I'm not sure whether I should open this door. So there's this like sort of like, uncertainty yeah anticipation exactly so i wanted it to be that way i didn't want to create signs i didn't want to give them too much information i just wanted them to kind of find out for themselves instead of like the singaporean style of spoon feeding everybody you know please come to this address you know knock on the door Mm -hmm. we'll give it to you i wanted them to find things out themselves so there's a little Mm -hmm. bit of like uh 
it's laziness on my part, but I think that really built to the suspense of everything. And like adding to that, like I know that the meal is always going to be uh, a certain standard because I, I really do want people to just enjoy the boxes for what, what it is. I put in a lot of attention to like the temperature and all the stuff like that so that they have like a, a really pleasant meal. So I think that translates once because the start of the experience is, is really interesting already, right? Like then you have like the suspense of holding the box, bringing it out and going to your car and going like, oh my God, I can't wait to eat this. And then once it comes to your table, like there's so much hype already. I would like, if the hype goes down after eating, then, you know, I feel very badly, but gladly people enjoy the boxes. So I think that whole start of the experience plus the eating of the boxes, like it creates like a very pleasant experience. So everyone was, was pretty happy with getting the boxes and, once like the first wave of people, like it was kind of slow at the start, to be honest. Like I would take maybe three days to sell out a couple of menus. But then once people started to detail their experience, you know, they, they showed a little pictures of the house, but gladly again, they didn't do the whole, like, you know, the video through the car park and stuff like that. Thank God that didn't happen. So there's still like a shroud of mystery behind it. So people were yeah. very interested in what I'm doing, you know, where's this house? How can it look so different from other like other parts of Singapore? So they started mm. to buy and, and I, I guess that's where the the self-marketing came in. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very sad that your tiffin experience is coming to an end because you are shifting to like a new concept, right? Is I it am. called alternative or alternative? It's actually called alternative. Like it's just a, okay. a play a play on the word because uh-huh. We we do what we what essentially we're trying to achieve here is not only about creating like a private dining experience where you come in and you eat the food, you interact with uh, the host, right? So what I wanted to create is like a like really all the local craftspeople and minds, creative minds of Singapore to come together to share a space and then create an experience that you really can't get unless you've experienced it yourself. So. I'm working with a friend of mine that it's uh, she's a local museum curator and a creative individual. So she she's not getting any, any money at all. <laughs> so she's just going to help me, kind of lick me up with all the artists that she worked with in Singapore. It doesn't matter what discipline. So I really think that that's very important for the, the house where people of different disciplines, creative, mm. come together and just kind of like, talk about what they do and their their thought process or like their techniques to doing this and we just kind of interact and see where we cross and then we work something mm-hmm. out and create a, a collaboration that really makes the diner feel like oh wow it's more than a dining experience right you know i come in you know i have there's like there's like visual aids there's there's textile aids there's uh the sound there's everything and then that's that creates like a totally different experience and that's really what I want to learn because I, I didn't really want to open a restaurant where I know that my my growth will just kind of come to a plateau. So I wanted mm-hmm. to work with a lot of different people to to kind of see in their view and at the same time have them have a peek of what like a chef thinks. Or me, and that kind of creates very different job roles, I guess, for them. So they can work in restaurants where they know what the chefs are thinking, that, that kind of thing, you know. Like... Uh, the first person I'm working with, which I'm very, very interested, like I'm, I'm super excited to to kind of have in, is like a textile artist called Project Co. 
So she does a lot of uh, natural dyes as well as weaves and stuff like that. Her name is Crystal and she's coming in to kind of uh, deck up the place with a lot of textiles. Mm. So one example is like while we're working together, she uses a lot of dyes mm. and I have a lot of food waste, oh, okay. like skins and stuff like that. So the way we cross is where I ask her like, what is what can you dye from my menu? And maybe can we create like a, 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 a swatch board or something mm. like that with different different uh, textures, different weaves and different colors to represent our menu yeah. and stuff like that and, and just deck the place up, make it warm and make it very interesting where it could be a gallery, but at the same time, it could be like a combined experience of both of our disciplines. Yeah, that's great. That's like creating an ecosystem. Thank you so much for chatting with me. I really enjoy chatting with you. And I must say that when you first messaged me telling me that you got a copy of my book, I was so surprised <laughs> and humbled that you got the book and that you cooked a recipe from Singapore noodles. I was so surprised, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I did. I, it was the curry puffs, right? Yeah, I, I still use like the base of that recipe for, for, for one of my menus, actually. Wow. Yeah, just... Adding like stuff to it is really good. <laughs> yeah, so when I first saw that book, I actually I was just like, oh my god, why didn't I do it? <laughs> but obviously, I can't write well enough, right? But exactly like everything in the book is the stuff that we really want to read about. Like it's it's the stuff where you go to like the wet markets and you want to try to ask the auntie and uncle, but you're just so intimidated mm. by them. Yeah, so thank you for writing the book. <laughs> well, thank you so much for everything that you're doing and I can't wait to actually come back and taste your food. Thank you very much. That wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. You have been listening to Desmond Shen of Tiffin Bicycle Club and Alternative. Chinese New Year is around the corner and if you're looking forward to making your own pineapple tarts this year, you can get a step-by-step guide if you sign up to our newsletter at sgpnoodles.substack.com. That is S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K. Once again, thank you for listening to the podcast and I'll catch you next week.